Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning, church. The peace of Christ be with you. It's great to be with you this morning as we uh, gear up for the holiday season beginning this week, Thanksgiving. I hope that you'll be able to gather with family and friends as we celebrate God's goodness and we are grateful for the Lord's provision. I want to welcome all of you who are here who are visiting with us for the first time or the first several times. Those of you who are members and regular attenders, we are glad that you are here. Welcome those as well on the live stream. I'm Pastor Randy, and I serve here as pastor, and it is great to be with you here on this Sunday in November as we finish this section of the book of Genesis, the gospel according to Genesis. And uh, this morning, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 11, and it is the story of the Tower of Babel. And as we prepare ourselves to go there, um, we will come back to the book of Genesis uh, next year, but this will serve as a good uh, ending point uh, for this segment. This morning, we look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, as we consider the Lord came to the city. So let's hear the word of God. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, have, we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they had begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray that by your very gift, the work and power of the Spirit, together with your word, that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to understand this section of your word, why we need it, why it is here. And I pray that you would also be at work through the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would find our rootedness, that we would find our sense of self, that we would find a home in you as our God, our creator, and as our redeemer. 
Be present with us, we pray. Help the teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this interesting passage, perhaps you've read it before. Uh, Perhaps you've wondered what in the world is all this about. I hope to give us a little bit more clarity in what is happening here and what's not happening here. To do so, we'll look together at this passage in two ways. First, it clearly, I think, uh, illustrates the aspiration of the envious soul, the soul, envious soul of man. But secondly, the grace reversal, the aspiration of the envious soul and the grace reversal. So first, the aspiration of the envious soul. It's important to note that in this uh, first few verses of chapter 11, the name, the word name, is used several times. And with the clause where it says, we will make a name for ourselves, it is the first time this book of Genesis declares that someone has a name that God did not give them. Here what we see is that man decides that what they're looking for is a sense of identity, a sense of dignity, a sense of worth that matters to them, that gives them a sense for why we're here and what we're moving towards. And in so doing, we see what happens as God looks on, but it First, before we see what God's response is, there are several layers I would suggest that are illustrated here in the actions of the people of Babel, which literally means the gate of God. Now, what is interesting is that there is wordplay going on here because very similar to Babel is also Bilal. Now, the word Bilal is to confuse. So Babel is intended to be the gate of God, their desire to be like God, but God seeks what he does in responding to them and uses the word Bilal. It's a word play in Hebrew that God will confuse their desires to be like him. Why would I suggest that I think this text illustrates their desire is to be like God is because I think in many ways you can hear it inferred within the text when it says, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. It isn't to suggest that they knew what God was like, but that they themselves wanted to be like God. At its very core, it is, I think, the the desire of man envying the very attributes of the divine. That in some way, we want to experience and to know the sense of limitlessness. No boundaries. You can hear it within their desire. Their desire is so they would not be scattered across earth, meaning they don't want boundaries. We want to do what we want to do. We want to be where we want to be, and we will build that which is a reflection of what we desire to be. Ron Highfield, uh, professor of religion and philosophy, says this. He says, we do not possess divine attributes, and hence we cannot gain everything we desire. Our desire is infinitely greater than our capacity to satisfy it. Our reach is further than our grasp. He says, what an unhappy state. He says, there is an emptiness, an emptiness to this desire 
this desire to be like God, a sense of limitlessness. The self is empty because it defines itself apart from its relationships to others. So with this common language, they want to be defined not by others, but together and not by anyone else. Highfield continues. He says, it is a desire because it must move out of itself to find other things to support and accompany and satisfy it. And then reflecting on our modern state, Highfield says, we attempt to inflate our empty selves by consuming other things and drawing them into ourselves. This strategy is doomed to futility. However, no finite thing, no finite thing can satisfy an infinite desire. Our desire is insatiable. There is an envy at the soul of what is being described here by this group of people, thousands of people, seeking to build the city of Babel, the gateway of God in the Semitic Hebrew language. But it is not the God of the scriptures that it is to be the gate of. It is to be the gateway to be like God, to build a city and a tower at its center. Not using, by the way, the the text tells us, not using reliable materials. Not stone, but brick. That's, That's a way for us inside the narrative to see that even their desire, an insatiable desire, seeks to build as quickly as possible. But in seeing the envy of the human soul to be like God, to experience limitlessness demonstrates the futility of the desire. The insatiable desire that can never be satisfied. The reason for that is that an envious soul is an empty soul. And when the soul is empty and when we feel empty as people, we grasp for other things into ourselves to define us, to give a sense of purpose and of meaning, which inherently is unstable because it requires something outside of us by our own hands to make us feel better about ourselves. This is, if you will, let's use a metaphor. This is like the first church of Babel and they've got their mission statement. We want to be the world. And we've got a building campaign. And we want to make a name for ourselves so everyone can see who we are, what we have, and what it is possible to be. You see how easy it is and how much we have refined what we think to be an ancient people Dumber than we are, less refined, but the truth is, there is nothing new under the sun. We have simply perfected it, and we put it in our pockets. We build worlds where we seek to find tribes that speak our language. 
We look to take other things to draw it into ourselves to make ourselves feel better, to give a sense of meaning and of purpose, but it is inherently unstable because we have a desire that cannot be satiated by the work of our own hands. There is a striving here. There's a striving to build something in our name, so they say, so that we can have a name, so that others can see it. Do you know what that is? That is what C.S. Lewis calls the root of pride. He, he suggested, and I think he's right, that pride is at its essence a sense of competitiveness. It is a sense of comparison. He says that in these words, he says, now, I want to be clear with you that pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, and better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Nearly all the other evils in the world, of which people put down to greed and selfishness, are really far more the result of pride. This striving to create a name for ourselves, if everybody speaks the language, and you're all working together to build the tower in the city, what does it matter? It's because they want the other nations, some 70 nations at this point, according to the book of Genesis, they want the other nations to see they've got something going on in there. We want to be part of that. And this striving drives them. Does this land for us? How much of our time do we spend in comparison? You've heard comparison is the killer of joy. Comparison is also the fuel of pride. We want because we have a desire to have meaning and purpose and value. And we are not more clever than our, our previous generations. We've just refined it to our own skill set. We desire meaning. We desire purpose. That we mean something, that we matter. But what's interesting is that God seeks to unmask it. But we must deal with something first and foremost. Is God unmasking the arrogance and the grandiose visions of this people in Babel? Is it because he feels that he's in competition with them? 
The way the Hebrew is translated into English, it makes it sound as though the Godhead is wondering, hey, if we don't do something about this, they're going to be like us. But to be very clear, God does not care about whether or not we dignify his name or recognize his power. He doesn't need our recognition to make him God. What God is unmasking is the inherent chaos and violence that is bound up in arrogance, pride, and envy, and striving. Because when someone else gets in the way of our pride or we feel slighted or not recognized or not respected or honored, how quickly are we enraged or annoyed or do we want to lash out in revenge and retaliation? How many families experience competition among siblings? You'll be reminded of that this week at Thanksgiving. (laughs) How many parents wonder which one of their children are going to make it? And what happens if they don't make it according to our plan? What happens is in the soul that is empty, even the soul that proclaims to believe in God is susceptible to this same aspiration of an envious soul. Where do you feel your pride removed from the throne? Is it by a child, by a sibling, by a coworker, by a neighbor? When someone crosses the boundaries of your life and doesn't give you what you deserve or what you desire, what gets you motivated and animated? This is something that Lewis brings out. He says, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, and it is much better to forget about yourself altogether. And when we're honest, it's very hard to forget about ourselves in a world driven by competition, pride, and that celebrates it. Thumbs up, like, responses, views, texts, phone calls, Recognition, cards, attaboys, girl. These things can seep in and God in coming down to Babel seeks to unmask this, not because he feels competition with humanity, but because he recognizes that with one language, humanity will destroy itself. And he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, one could make the argument, but when you confuse the language, doesn't that cause chaos and disruption? It's not the cause, but it most certainly has not aided our working together. But the lack of a common language isn't our problem. Our problem is at the very center of ourselves is this desire to make ourselves great and not trust in the name 
that we have sung of this morning. To have glory in his name, to trust in his name, to find refuge in his name, to know that there is a resting place in his name is one of the hardest places to be because it calls us into another and out of ourselves. We cannot consume God. He invites us into himself. And here he responds to man's arrogance and saying, I'm going to confuse the language. But we, sitting on this side of the writing of Scripture, ought to recognize first and foremost that this story of the aspiration of the envious soul, that God's final answer is not just to leave humanity in confusion of languages. The very next chapter... God is going to call one man. He will change his name to Abraham. And he says, I will make you a father of many nations. Abram means great father. Abraham means father of many nations. And through Abraham, God would bring a man. Through that lineage, God would bring us forth to the man, Jesus Christ, who would be a person from a no-name family, from a backwater town, whose name would be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, that God is going to do something that is very much in the reverse of what man desired. Man desired to build a tower to make their name great, to be like God, to keep going up so that they can look down on everybody else. Look how great we are. God's ultimate response, the unmasking of the pride of humanity is to come down to us. There is another city that God visited where language was an issue. And that is given to us in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we read these words. Now, when the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as it was called in the Old Testament, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a sound of the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then on this day, what it describes is a city full of many different languages, many different people, another international city who would be amazed that this group of no-name disciples would start speaking in languages that they understand to tell of a message of the one who had come for them. It is so dramatic in God's coming down to this city that they thought they were drunk, the text tells us. It says, some, however, made fun of these languages and made fun of these men. They have had too much wine. To which Peter, hearing this, 
says, he stood up with the 11, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Okay, got it. No, this is what has been spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show them wonders in heaven above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire, bills of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter goes on, he says, men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among those through him, among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Hearing Peter preach, God, by the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, they then ask, what do we need to do? Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. The grace reversal is that God does not need to build a tower. He has come to humanity even in the confusion of languages, not delivering a transcendent language, but a transcendent story cutting across all tribes, all tongues, all nations around the world. And that message is, we don't need a tower to be limitless like God. We need God to give us a cross to show us that we are loved and made in his image that we do not create our own meaning. We cannot fill our own souls. God, by creating us, knows us and loves us. And instead of making his name great, Jesus Christ emptied himself of his glory, taking on the clothing and the life of a servant, giving himself to us. So instead of us working and achieving and striving, God is giving and pouring out and inviting and all he asks us to do is to receive. And what he asks us to receive is that which he has always intended to know, 
that he is a loving God who forgives sins and has made us for himself. And when we can lay all of our deadly doing down, down at the cross, the hymn writer says, we receive a meaning and an identity and a freedom that can never be taken away. A rootedness and a peacefulness and a humility that is from heaven itself. And there we can find rest for our weary souls. In writing about pride in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives us a brief, right in the middle of the paragraph, writing about pride, a very quick self-reflection point. And here is what he writes. He says, I wish I had gone a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking all of my fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all of its look at me, aren't I a good boy? And all of its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. In writing about the root problem of the soul, of being human, Genesis chapter 11 opens up in all of its technicolor glory at the heart of an envious, empty, and prideful soul of man. It is pride that believed the deceit of the serpent. It is pride that rejects the gifts of God. It is pride that desires limitless and boundaryless life. It is pride that wants to take and find honor and value in others or in other things. But thanks be to God that God in his grace from the beginning never gives up on us. And he sends his son, he sends his spirit, and he invites us into himself. And in so doing, gives us a rest that is like a cold glass of water for a man in the desert. Jesus had something very clear to say to his disciples. And here is where I want to land this morning. In John chapter 15, he's with his disciples. He's demonstrated his power. He's performed miracles. He has sent them out. They are on the train to somewhere, and they're thinking, glad I got a ticket on this train. This is it. 
and they so clearly at moments get it and then they don't get it. What could be a better picture of the church? We get it, thanks be to God, and then we go right out on Monday morning and we start on to our achieving and striving again. We need to be reminded again and again in all of our striving, God in his grace invites us back again. And in one of those moments, Jesus reminds his disciples, hey, guys, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, we don't need a tower. We don't need the respect and accolades and honor from things and from others. We need to find the place where we can remove our fancy dress and our posturing and our posing, our trying to achieve a name by our own hands, to find a place where we can rest and know from him through him and to him, we can find what it means to be truly human. And one of the greatest gifts we can give to ourselves and we can give to others is to demonstrate that I have found peace and I am at peace because I have found the peace of Christ. This is what is on offer. This is what he invites us to. Thanks be to God we do not achieve, rather we simply receive. And so I encourage you this morning, as we close this portion of our service, for a moment of quiet reflection, and I want you to hear that the Lord has come for you by his death and resurrection and gives you a place for your weary soul that you might find rest and a peace that can never be stolen and a name and a value that is written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for Christ Community Church. I pray for all who hear my voice. We acknowledge how easy it is for us to strive and make a name for ourselves. As the church, we do it through our buildings, our budgets, our visions, and our mission statements. As individuals, we do it and we strive and we want more and more. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us over and over again, we will not be satisfied until we find our home in you. I pray for everyone here and myself that we will be able to rest and know that you are God, that you love us 
and that you have built a cross, you have emptied a tomb, that we would know that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Give us this water. Give us this living water that brings forth fruit. Give us the ability to find rest and to offer that to others in a world that is weary. Help us, we pray. Save us from ourselves that we might find you. In Jesus' name, amen.